The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Let's pause for just a moment and seek the Lord's presence and blessing as we look into His Word. Father, our hearts rejoice to be with these brothers and to lift our voices together to sing praises to your name. Father, we just want to pause to praise you and thank you for a love so great that you would send your Son to take upon the form of human flesh to be made weak so we could be strong, to be made poor so we could be rich, to bear our sin so we could be free from it. Be with us tonight as we look into your word. Speak to our hearts that our hearts might rest in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to share with you tonight from 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read a passage from chapter 12, but if you will allow me, I'm going to read more of the scripture tonight than I typically do in a sermon because I want us to look not only at what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12, but how he gets there, what it is he's doing with it, how it fits into his overall argument in the book. And uh, I trust that this will be an encouragement, not only in the content of what Paul says, but also in, uh, in thinking about how to see the, the movement of a passage, how, what the author is doing with what he is saying. Join me in reading in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 12. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But not on my own behalf, I I will not boast. Except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth... But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power 
is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In 1960, my parents were waiting for me to be born, for us then to almost immediately move to Manaus, Brazil. So in July of 1960, our family left from Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, over the course of the next 24 hours made our way to Manaus, Brazil. Uh, And my dad, without any previous study of the Portuguese language before arriving in Brazil, would preach his first sermon in Portuguese for 45 minutes, three months, and 10 days later. Uh, The mission organization he was with, but they headlined that on their mission paper. It's like, Wallace York preaches first sermon in Portuguese, three months and 10 days after landing in Brazil. Indeed, he had a facility with the language, and he had a heart and a passion for the Brazilian people. But less than 11 months later, we would come back to the United States. Because my dad, uh, well, he thought he had stomach cancer, but he, he simply could not function. It's hard to live in the tropics. It's especially hard to live in the Amazon. And he had uh, all kinds of stomach bugs and basically, to put it very bluntly, became incontinent. Um, two months ago, my sister was cleaning out my, my, my dad went home to be the Lord in 2009. Two months ago, my sister was cleaning out some of my mom's closets and stuff and came across all my dad's correspondence from 1960 and 61. And I, I read that. The anguish of his soul. Writing back to his mission board about what he was going through. The challenge of he had a canoe with a four horsepower motor and he would on the Thursday he would leave Manaus and go up the river to a little place called Mida'awa. In the 13 months we lived there, he planted a church. He reached one family in particular. There was a little blind boy named Sebastian Oliveira, 12 years old at the time, and trusted the Lord, he and his family, who later became one of the best-known evangelists and Christian singers in all of Brazil. My dad and my mom and my two sisters were members, charter members of the Chapada Baptist Church that today is called the Nova Igreja Baixista, the New Baptist Church in Manaus that is one of the 10 largest churches in Brazil. They helped plant that. In 13 months, God used him tremendously. But he came home and, frankly, in just absolute shame. Uh, not because of any moral failure, but because of the failure of his body. Found it difficult to find a pastorate for the next two years. And uh, frankly, it, it affected the rest of his ministry. Uh, I, 
I read this text, and when I read about this thorn in the flesh, my, my mind goes to my childhood and my life with my dad, who used to joke that he could climb a fence and take off his sport coat at the same time. Because when he said stop the car, he didn't mean look for a place. It, it was a challenge, uh, really unspeakably, for the rest of his ministry. So many times... He would talk to me about how he prayed for the Lord to remove that thorn in the flesh. A physical weakness that he was certain he could be more effective if the Lord would take it away. Has it ever occurred to you that the very thing that you wish the Lord would take away from you might be the very reason God can use you? I love the book of 2 Corinthians. I think it's Paul's most artistic book. I think it's remarkable. It's, it's unlike any of his others. I, the, the writing of it is so absolutely precise. He, you know, uh, liberals attack the integrity of this book. They, they attack the unity of 2 Corinthians. They believe that it's pieced together. And the reasoning goes like this, that because Paul changes the tone of the book so much as he goes through it, it begins lofty enough. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations so that we can comfort others with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. It, it starts with this lofty praise, but very quickly becomes evident that Paul is upset with the Corinthians because this church where he spent 18 months of his life, where he preached the gospel, where God used him to found this church, to plant this congregation. Now, they have become seduced by these other people claiming to be Christians who are much more eloquent than Paul. They're much more impressive than Paul. They they have a better resume than Paul. And it's as though you're reading Paul going, how could you do this? Now, when I read liberal scholars attacking the unity of 2 Corinthians, I know one thing. These guys have never parented teenagers. <laughs> because when I read 2 Corinthians, I get exactly what Paul's doing, right? I mean, th this is just like every conversation I had with my sons when they were teenagers. You know, I started it well enough. There was some, they, they've done some dumb thing. And I can't believe they've done such a dumb thing. And so I want to talk to them about it. And I start nicely enough. And then I get into it. How did, could you do such a dumb thing? And the more I talk, the more a little bit, you know, ticked I get. And it begins, my emotion begins to show. And then at some point I would realize you've got to back it down. Change the subject. And so like Paul does in chapters 8 and 9, where he says, let's talk about taking up an offering. <laughs> I would change the subject to something else. And then like he does in chapter 10, I would remember the thing I was ticked about and I'd be more angry than ever. <laughs> well, that's precisely what Paul does. It, it, I have no problem accepting the unity of this book. It follows a trajectory that makes perfect sense to any parent. And that's precisely what Paul is saying to them. 
they have despised, they've looked down on his weakness. We don't know what this was, but there was something that Paul had. Some suggest it had something to do with his eyesight. It very well might have had something to do with his physical appearance. When you read the list of things that he suffered, that he, he, when he spells them all out in chapter 11, no doubt through his beatings and being stoned, it had some type of an effect on his appearance. Perhaps he was crooked over from his bones being broken and then set improperly or mending badly. And whatever it was, it made people look down on him. They said, oh, his, his letters are weighty. He, he can really write a nice letter. It's very impressive in writing. But his presence, his physical presence is weak. There's the word. And contemptible. Well, this is the charge. And Paul brings it up. And throughout the letter, he keeps referring to the way that these guys who have more sparkling resumes, uh, they're better rhetoricians. They can deliver a speech more eloquently than he. They don't deliver hard truths. They don't say tough things. They're much more palatable to the Corinthians. And so therefore, they're much more readily accepted. And Paul knows, though, that it's not merely about their personalities. It's about the gospel, that what they are preaching is close to the gospel. But anything that is close to the gospel is not the gospel. And so he's rather stunned. How, how could you do this? And here in chapter 12, he gets to sort of the pinnacle of his argument. The way that they despise his weakness is absolutely contrary to the way God not only uses us in spite of our weakness, but because of it. Anything that makes me depend on Christ is a gift. If in fact, the greatest good in your life is for you to walk in total and complete dependence on Christ. Is, if that's the goal, if that's the greatest condition that you can be in on this earth, then anything that causes you to lean on him, to rely on him, to depend on him is a gift to you. Every believer ought not only to be grateful for our weaknesses, but to glory in our weakness because Christ is most clearly revealed, not in our gifts or our strengths, but in our weakness. Now, this is what Paul instructs us. Paul's words instruct us that we should glory in our weakness, I think for, for three primary reasons. First of all, I, I, when I glory in my weakness, I distinguish myself from the world. Paul's opponents gloried in their strengths. Uh, they were very, very impressive men, apparently. That, and by the way, that's the technique of the world, isn't it? The world loves a show. And there are plenty of churches out there that specialize in giving the world the show it wants. We think somehow that, you know, man, if we can have better lighting... That's the thing we need. If, if we can get smoke machines, 
boy, people will just join our church. We'll see conversions. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that any of those things are wrong, though I don't get smoke machines. (laughs) But I know this. The power of God does not lie in lighting or smoke machines or staging or performance skills. It lies in the Word of God. It's not a show that churches need to show people. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely the argument Paul is making throughout the entire book. He's saying... They are happy to give you this show. They're happy to give you what you want. The power of their words, the impressive presence that they present. But what I have to give you is the gospel. When I glory in my, my weakness, I, I'm, I'm saying, no, I'm distinguished from the world. I'm not like the world. I'm not relying on what the world relies on. Secondly, When I glory in my weakness, I distance myself from my strengths. Strengths and gifts are seductive. To rely on your gifts, to rely on your strengths, is uh, sometimes to deny your need of the gospel, your need of Christ. It's it's a tricky thing to have gifts. God can bless you with many gifts, and, and you can use them for his glory, but it's so easy to begin to think that that gift is yours, that somehow you possess it, or you earned it, or you accomplished it, or worse yet, that you need it. When God uses you, not because of your gifts, but because of his glory. And this is precisely the the argument that Paul is making. When, uh, you know, after he talks about taking up an offering in chapters 8 and 9, when he gets to chapter 10, Notice he, he turns back, he turns his attention back to this issue of his weakness. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Well, I think Paul wants us to know that it's him that's saying it. Notice the triple reference there. The only place that occurs. I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Now look, I, I want you to allow me to read much of this with the, the tone that I think Paul intended it. If you read this sort of flatly, the way a lot of preachers read scripture, you're going to miss the meaning. This thing is saturated with sarcasm uh, and uh, with irony. Listen to what he says. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now that's loaded. This is the very thing that they've criticized about him. His meekness, his gentleness. Oh, you know, he's, his letters are weighty, but his presence is, is weak. And he's reminded them, look, what I display toward you is a characteristic I get from my Lord. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Skip down to verse 9. I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Oh, really? 
They're frightened by his letters. You hear Paul being sarcastic. Oh, I don't want to scare you people. I I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Here Paul is saying, okay, I'm I'm going to make sure the next time I'm there that these two things are equal. I'm going to come to you with boldness. Skip down to verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you guys are impressed by resumes. And that's a foolish thing. For you to think that because someone has some kind of, of external qualification or they're eloquent, that this is the thing that should impress you. But if that's the game you want to play, let's just play it. Let's just lay the resumes up on the table and compare them. Now, I'm just going to admit at the outset, this is a foolish enterprise. But I'm going to do it. Do bear with me in a little foolishness. Because I feel a divine jealousy for you. Down in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't think they're super apostles. What's he doing? He, he's like, okay, let, let's, just, let's just play that game. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Down in verse 12. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do. In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And he's like, okay, I'm going to undermine their claim. They, these guys show up and they say that they're on the same level as me, these super apostles. Well, I'm going to undermine that claim. I, I'm going to show you that they're not working on the same terms as we do. And uh, just in case you don't know what Paul's saying, look at verse 13. For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of christ and no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds well i think that was unmistakable (laughs) false apostles Paul is not saying you shouldn't listen to them because they're not as talented as I am. He's saying don't listen to them because they're not preaching the gospel. And it is a fearful thing to think that people who have sat under faithful gospel preaching could then be so easily seduced by someone just because they're flashier more talented, better dressed, more educated, more eloquent of speech. Paul says, no, they're, they're false apostles, 
Don't listen to them. Their end will correspond to their be- their deeds. Now, he says, okay, let's compare resumes. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, okay, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. I must say, we were too weak for that. Do you hear the intense sarcasm in his pen? It's just dripping with his disappointment in them. He says, for whatever anyone else dares to boast of, (laughs) I'm speaking like a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Okay, you want to compare things? Okay, he says, I'm not doing this the way the Lord would do this, but I'm doing it the way you want it done. So, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to boast. Let's go down that path. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. (laughs) With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fail and I'm not indignant? Man, I don't know about you. I can't, I can't begin to fathom all Paul endured for the gospel's sake. I, I, was, I was in Nigeria one time and uh, I had been teaching at a seminary and they were driving me all the way back to Lagos. It was a very, very, about a day's journey. And we went through a Muslim city and there was a traffic jam and we got stuck in the street and you could see there was a group of Muslim young men and they looked up and they saw me sit in the back of this, this car. The driver was in the front and suddenly they began to run for me. They began to make, try to get to the car and my driver seeing them coming knew this was not good news, but we were in a traffic jam. He put the thing in reverse, hit the car behind us, put it in drive, hit the car in front of us, made himself a little space, hopped over the median and went back the the other way. He got us away from them. And of course, I'm terrified. I looked at him. I said, what were they going to do? He said, you don't want to (laughs) know. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've thought about many times what would have happened if those those Muslim young men had 
drag me out of that car and beat me. If I survived it, I would have my sermon illustration for life. (laughs) You'd ask me to come to your church and tell about the time I got beat by the Muslims and man, you'd be, wow, he got beat for the gospel's sake. You know, for Paul, that was just before breakfast every day. (laughs) I mean, can you even fathom this list of things he's endured? I, I, I mean, we think of ourselves as the sum total of our abilities rather than simply as the servants of God. We think more of our gifts than of our calling. I, do, am I more of a professor or am I a bond servant of Jesus Christ? Am I a pulpiteer or am I a shepherd? See, Paul is going right at the heart of what they value. They're valuing these men based on what they can do, not based on who they represent or what they preach. And Paul's saying, okay, you want to do that? What has their preaching cost them? Here's what it has cost me. And because of all this, he says, all right, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Then we get to chapter 12, and it's here that Paul changes directions. After he's laid the resume up there and he's comparing what he has endured to what they have endured, he said, there's one other thing. I must go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. do Do you see, this is now the next and the final step in Paul's argument in comparing himself to these false apostles. I'm going to go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then Paul goes into this very strange third person description of himself. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Now he's got me right there. Doesn't he you like, okay, what's he going to tell us? I know a man who who's the man 14 years ago. What happened? Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. I mean, he's got me. I'm hooked. What happened to this guy? He was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. He heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. I don't know what you would ask someone who said they'd been caught up to heaven, but I know the first question I would ask. What was it like? Paul goes, can't talk about it. (laughs) What? We expect that this is Paul's trump card. This is the thing that's going to completely separate him from these super apostles. Ha! 
Has that happened to them? Has God caught them up to the third heaven? Has God revealed this deep of an experience to them? But just when he's got us, just when we want to know the details, he completely brushes it aside. Can't talk about it. Not lawful for a man to utter. I want to talk to you about what happened afterward. And while we're still looking back over at the event, wait, wait, I'm still wanting to know about what happened to this guy. Paul makes it clear he's talking about himself. Because he, now he switches to the first person again. On behalf of this man, I will boast. You get it? He'll say, oh, I, I can boast of this experience. I can say, look at this. This great experience has happened to me. I could appeal to this as my personal revelation. I've had an experience that no one else has had. I could boast of that. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of the very thing you despise. I'll boast of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul's turned, he's flipped the argument. We thought he was going to say, this is the very thing that makes it absolutely undeniable that they should listen to him and not these super apostles. He goes, ah, if I wanted to boast of that, I could. It's the truth. It happened. But the only thing I can boast of is the thing you think disqualifies me, my weakness. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in my flesh. Do you see this pattern in Paul's life? He has this intense revelation, but this intense personal experience tends to lead to elevation. So to keep that from happening, God sends humiliation. And that humiliation is the thing God uses for sanctification. Because the ultimate goal is intimacy with God. And Paul doesn't get intimacy with God because of that third heaven experience. He gets it because... He cries out to God to remove the thorn. See, God has to interfere with our direction. He has to give us a reminder of our dependence on him. He wants to move us from mere relationship to true intimacy. You will learn far more about God in the thorns than you will in the third heaven. Paul calls it paradise. I don't know about you, but I love those experiences. I love the times when just this incredible sense of the presence of God floods my soul. Those moments of personal revival and you just, it's as though you feel like you are in the presence of Jesus himself. 
I love that. I like that. I, I love when we're singing and worshiping. And man, I tell you, the, the sound of this group of, of gospelers, preachers, lifting our voices. I think we need to buy a bus and go on tour. <laughs> it, it's marvelous. But many of us are going to go back home to situations that are less than ideal. You're going to leave this third heaven experience and you're going to go back to a lot of thorns. I want you to know, ultimately, you're going to learn more about Christ there than you will sitting in a bunch of guys singing because there you're going to feel your need to depend on him in a way that you don't any other time. Did did you notice who gave Paul the thorn? Who gave it to him? If the purpose of the thorn was so that he would not be conceited, who's that from? It's from God. God gave it to him. The thorn is a gift from God to keep him from being out of the will of God, to keep him from being puffed up. But let's be honest with the text. What else does it call it? A messenger of Satan. Listen, you can waste a lot of time looking at the circumstances of your life, trying to figure out if God is doing this or Satan is doing it. The reality is the very same thing that God uses to make you stronger, Satan will use to make you stumble. The very thing that the Lord uses to make you depend on him, Satan will try and use to make you turn from him. It doesn't matter the source of the thing. The response is what matters. And Paul sees this thorn. And what does he do? He cries out to God, remove it. Now, I don't blame Paul one bit, do you? Who doesn't pray for healing? Who doesn't pray for God to take away pain and grief and sorrow? You, you can't deny a bleeding, stabbing pain in your side. We call out to God, oh, take this away. But look at what Paul says. He has said to me. I don't know why the ESV and other translations don't translate this as the perfect tense that it is in Greek. It doesn't say he said to me, a simple past tense, aorist tense. It says, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, you use the perfect tense to indicate something that happened in the past but has a continuing effect. If I say to you, have you eaten? If you're full, what will you say? Yeah, I have eaten. If you're hungry, what will you say? No, I haven't eaten. Why? Because you don't still have the effect of being satisfied, of sated. You, no, I haven't eaten. You're not having the effect. If, when Paul says, he has said to me, the meaning is, he said it and he continues to say it, my grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient for you. When uh, I went to seminary, I had been on a church staff for seven years. I had an undergraduate degree in Greek. I had four years of undergraduate, degree, uh, undergraduate Greek. And then I did a master's in Greek, 30 hours of Greek on top of my undergraduate degree. When I went to seminary, I had 56 hours of Greek already on my transcript. 
I literally had more Greek on my transcript than any professor at my seminary when I enrolled. And I thought I was hot stuff. <laughs> I remember sitting across the desk from Dr. Rick Mellick, and he looked at my transcript, and he looked at me, and he said exactly that. You realize you've got more Greek than anybody here? I said, yeah. I was 27 years old, a little full of myself. When I left Lexington to go to Mid-America Seminary in Memphis, everybody in Lexington at my church said, boy, a church is going to snatch you up in no time at all. You'll be pastoring in no time. They'll be lucky to have you. And I thought, yeah, they will. <laughs> Tanya and I had two little boys, and we, we left a job. We went to we moved down to eastern Arkansas. We had... $3,000 we'd saved up. Boy, that seemed like a lot of money. And it was gone in a matter of two months. It was, it was gone. We had to find a place to live, make car payments, two, two kids. Man, I was putting out resumes everywhere. Nobody down there knew me. They didn't know where I was coming. And furthermore, they really weren't impressed with how much Greek I had on my transcript. <laughs> I, I was mowing yards. I was doing anything I could do. And I was crying out to God, Lord, please, I, I just, just, just give me a church job. You know, I don't have to be the lead pastor. I'll be an associate pastor. Months go by. I'm like, Lord, I'll be a youth pastor again. You know, <laughs> and finally, I got a call from the Kirby Woods Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And they said, will you come be our janitor? And I said, I sure will. I sure will. And I'd love to tell you that I went into that with great joy, <laughs> surrendered to Christ. But you know what? I, I went into that resentful. I just thought, this is beneath me. I should, and to make it worse, the Lord put my direct supervisor at the church or someone who really wasn't even in ministry. You know, he had all secular education. I thought, man, I know more than he does, and he's making big bucks, and I'm making minimum wage cleaning toilets. And it was like the Lord was just speaking to my heart, going, until you can clean those toilets for my glory, you're not ready to pastor a church for my glory. It took me a year. I remember one day uh, the lady was playing the organ in the sanctuary on a Monday while I was cleaning the seats. And I began singing while she was playing. And she stopped. She said, you have a wonderful voice. I said, well, I used to be a minister of music. She said, well, what happened? you commit adultery or something? <laughs> no. No. This is the only job I could get. After doing that for a year, church had a crisis. They laid off all staff. I was unemployed again. And I said, boy, I'm not going to fail the test this time. And I, I told the Lord, Lord, I, I, I'm willing to do anything or nothing for you. I just want to glorify Christ. And in that moment, I learned God was not at all impressed with my degree, my ability with Greek. He, he didn't need that. No little thought had popped into my tiny brain that had not occurred to the divine wisdom 
There was no force in my limbs that added to his great strength. Uh, there were no riches in my bank account that added to his wealth and glory. He didn't need a thing I had or did. And when I just said, Lord, I'm yours. And if all you will let me do is clean these toilets or do anything for your glory, I, I just want to glorify Christ. And that's when the Lord said, okay, now I can use you. It was a life-changing experience. I had a great experience in seminary. And I, I, this is not a reflection on my seminary. I love them. They had, it was a great experience. But I will tell you, I learned more cleaning the toilets at Kirby Woods Baptist Church than I learned in the classroom at Mid-America Seminary. Because God had to work on me. I had, you know, I had this great revelation. Oh, I knew the word. There was elevation. He sent humiliation. And that's what led to sanctification. That's what drove me to intimacy. See, God's promise is that his grace is sufficient. When I was a little boy, we, we came back. My, one of the churches my dad pastored was in Logan County, Kentucky. We lived at a place called Lick Skillet on Watermelon Road by Whippoorwill Creek. <laughs> I'm not making that up. You think I'm making that up? No. There was a one-lane bridge right by our house on Watermelon Road, and it was rattle trap, only one you know, one car could cross at a time. When you cross it, it rattled. You hear all the metal clanging in the wood. And, and eventually the state of Kentucky came in and they demolished that bridge and they built a new two-lane bridge right there over Whippoorwill Creek. Now, when they did that, how much resources, how many resources did they send to build that bridge across Whippoorwill Creek? Did they send as much as you would need for the Golden Gate Bridge or to cross the Ohio River? You know how much they sent? They, they sent materials that were sufficient to cross the Whippoorwill Creek. This is God's promise to you. That whatever you face, his grace will be sufficient. You say, I, I'm afraid to die. You're not dying yet. I'm afraid of what I'll face in the future. You're not there yet. When you have need of his grace, it will be there for you. You will have the resources sufficient to help you face whatever God allows in your life. The very same thing that acted as Satan's messenger acted as God's gift. Do not forget what Luther said. The devil is always God's devil. And nothing's going to come into your life that is outside of the grace and the grasp of God. He'll use it. You just glory in your weakness because it will distance you from your own strengths and cause you to lean on him. There's a third thing. When I glory in my weakness, I display in myself the power of Christ. That's what it's about. When God said no, he promised his grace. And he explained to Paul that Christ shined more clearly in his weakness. And when Paul got that, when he understood what God was doing, it changed his attitude to the thorn. He said, three times I, I prayed, Lord, remove this. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. He said it. He continues to say it. And therefore, I will gladly glory in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. When God said no, 
Paul understood God had a purpose. He realized that the very thing that troubled him was the thing that God used to make him intimate with Christ. Look, it's not wrong to ask God why. When we ask God why, what we really mean is explain to me why this is happening so that it takes the pain away. But God will rarely do that. We have to learn the lesson that Job learned, that Habakkuk learned, that Paul learned. You know, Job asked God why, didn't he? And Habakkuk, he saw, he saw the Babylonians getting stronger and Israel getting weaker, and he cried out to God, why? You know what God said to each of them? York's paraphrased version, I'm God, and you're not. Job, where were you when I put the stars in space? Habakkuk, I'm the one that's raising up the Babylonians to deal with my people. Paul, I'm the one who gave you that thorn. And when each of them understood the character of God, not the why, but the who, they changed their attitude. Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I repent in dust and ashes. Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmity so that the power of Christ may rest in me. And when you can trust God with the thorn, when it makes no sense to you, when it seems like you would be more effective as a servant if he would just take this away, but he says to you, no, my grace is sufficient for you because what I want you to learn is not about your effectiveness, but my sufficiency. It changes your attitude. And I rest in that. Dr. Richard Selzer wrote a book called Mortal Lessons about his experiences as a surgeon. He writes, I stand by the bed where a young girl lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask? He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, 
I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. The Lord Jesus left the throne of glory and twisted himself into the likeness of sinful flesh to meet us where we are in our weakness, to bear our sins on Calvary's cross, to redeem us for all eternity so that we can be with him even though we are weak because he gives us a grace that is always sufficient. Father, I pray that we might not trust in our strengths, in our gifting, in our talents, in our intellect, but that we will rest solely and completely in the power of Christ. Because in our weakness, your strength is perfected. The very thing that qualifies us is sometimes the very thing that we cry out to you to take away when we think we could be more effective without it. And yet your voice rings through this text. Your grace is sufficient. Make us Rest in that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life where the learning is for living.